Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. Now, James is the brother of Jesus. And James being the brother of Jesus was not really mentioned much in the Bible, even though he was his brother, um, not much to the Gospels or, or anywhere else. And so even though he wasn't mentioned much, um, Paul refers to him as one of, the, uh, one of the pillars along the side of John and along the side of Peter in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. So when it comes to his theology, uh, when it comes to James, he was brought up um, around the book of Proverbs and also um, influenced by Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Um, they say that you can see, um, you know, glimpses of that through his teachings, uh, especially chapters 1 through 9 in Proverbs and uh, again through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, being Jesus' brother, Jesus had a lot of one-liners. He had a lot of times where Jesus would just come out with this wisdom nugget. And you'll see that same thing here in, in, in James, as you'll see James give these like one-liners or just profound statements, and they start right away from the very beginning as he's, as he's speaking and um, as he's uh, writing this epistle. So we'll see that. But one of the things that I find very fascinating about James is how his role and his play in the history of the church. So just to put this in a time frame when it comes to the history of the church, Jesus starts the church by starting his ministry and calling the first 12 disciples. We find Jesus called the 12 disciples and spends the next three years, and when he spends these next three years, what do we see? We see him living life on life with the disciples. They go from town to town and place to place where they minister the word of God, speak the good news. You know, there's a lot of healings, a lot of deliverances. Even into the thousands, they see miracles, right? Him walk on water, he feed 5,000. So when it comes to the end of the three years and Jesus is about to uh, start, uh, well, actually he already uh, finished his ministry and his discipleship with them, comes to the end of the three years, he ends up with about 120. Now this is already after died, after he died, he rose and he appeared to hundreds. He ends up with 120. This 120, Jesus gives instruction before Jesus ascends to heaven. Now ascend means to go up and to sit at the right hand of the Father, and that would be the last time they would see Jesus on this earth. Before he does that, he gives instructions to the 120 and says, look, I want you to wait and wait for the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is gonna come upon you and it's better that I go that way he could be in you. And he'll give you power to be my witness. We find this in the book of Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes down, and he comes upon the 120 that are there, and they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. At that point, the same Peter that, was, um, that had denied Jesus, that was fearful, um, that chopped off the ear of a soldier, now gets up and preaches his first Holy Spirit-filled sermon. And through that sermon that he gives, 3,000 souls were added that day. 3,000 were basically added to the 120. So now we're up to 3,120. Jesus' death was A.D. 30 to 36, somewhere around that time. 
James writes his first epistle in AD 62. So that's a 26 to 30 year uh, time, sp time sp uh, spread. So about 26 to 30 years is when James writes this first epistle. Now remember, this is the first epistle that's going to be given to the first church, the mother church. The church is only about 26 to 30 years old. So I find it fascinating that we have James being the first one up. And he's not one of the 12 disciples or 12 apostles that were first named. He actually comes out of the side. Maybe he had a hard time believing, you know, and he finally comes to faith. And, and, and you definitely see uh, God do a great work in James' life. James isn't so much worried about coming up with theology. He really just wants to, you know, get with it, talk about your life, get in your business, and start living this life out. So we find this in James chapter 1. Now, what would you do if you were going to send, you were going to have the first letter written to your first church if you were God? I find it also interesting that the Ville Church, under the leadership of, of Jay as the lead pastor, I believe this is our first time, if I'm not mistaken, going through a whole book verse by verse. Jay had mentioned, hey, we should go through James. And so when I was studying the history of this, I'm like, Wow. Here we are starting the very first book, verse by verse, and it's the very first book that was written or the very first epistle to the first church that Jesus had. So what would you say? Anybody? What would you tell the very first church if you were God? <laughs> repent, okay. <laughs> so repent, okay. So what would you say? Well, let's see what he says. James chapter 1, he says, my friends, be glad. We all know it as count it all joy, right? If you have a lot of trouble. You know that you learn to endure by having your faith tested, but you must learn not to endure everything. I mean, you must learn to endure everything so that you will completely mature and not lacking in anything. And if any of you need wisdom, you should ask of God. In the ESV, it says, many trials. You shall receive many trials. So James is just putting it out there right away. Look, there are going to be so many trials, so many trials coming your way, right? Count it all joy, my brethren. Now, he's saying right up front, you're going to have trials. And he says, when, that doesn't mean if you're going to have trials, it just means when you're going to have a trial. So either they're in a trial, either they're going towards a trial, or they're coming from a trial. And that's pretty much how it is in this life. He doesn't say not some of you. He says you, not the person next to you, no you. He reminds us that we will be in trials. Now, this reminds me of an experience that I had about 25 years ago. I had just come to the Lord. I had gotten baptized, and my pastor invited me to go do a hospital visit. So I go out to go do this hospital visit, and we're going to visit one of the sisters in the church that was there. She's about 90 years old. And she had been one of the original members, and the church was about 50 years old. She's probably been there the whole 50 years, from what I understand. So I go with him, not knowing, you know, anything, and just, we go, we pray for her, and, you know, he starts to tell her, oh, yeah, you know, Brother Rodney, he just got baptized, and he's all fired up for the Lord. And she's, oh, that's, that's awesome, that's great. She's like, you know, a lot of them start that way, all fired up, but wait till you go through something, and let's see if you're still fired up. I sort of feel like that's exactly what James is saying here. Like, this is great that you come to Jesus. This is all awesome. But 
I'm just going to go straight to the point. If you had a big head when you came here, it's deflated. Let's see if you stay fired up 25 years from now, 50 years from now, right? And that's sobering, but it's also helpful. It's also healthy to be able to put it out there right away. In the same way, James goes for broke right away. He lets us know that there's many trials that are going to come our way. It's a normal way of life and that we can also count it all joy. See, these, these trials that we go through, it brings us joy in knowing that we can get through them and that our faith is going to grow through these trials and that we'll experience Jesus in these trials. I know it sounds good, but it's harder to practice. Which leads us up to our passage today, and this is where we're at in the book of James. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. If you could turn there, or if you see it on the screen. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desires, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. God does test his people. God does test his people. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus himself took his disciples, told them to go on a, a boat and go into a storm, which is a tempest, which is a, 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 a storm, right, to be tested. Now, God did not tempt Jesus in the way that James is talking about here, in the way of enticing or encouraging or persuading someone to do evil. God did not do that with Jesus. God is sovereign over our sin. And even though he's sovereign over our sin, and that is true. So for those that are, you know, Calvinists or really believed in, you know, God's sovereignty, which we should believe in God's sovereignty because he is over all. And there's nothing that he's not uh, over uh, more powerful than or works it out to what he wants. But in that, even though he is sovereign, even though he's more powerful than anything, he never, ever invites us to sin or urges us to sin or tries to seduce us to sin. God never does that, even though he's sovereign. So James is saying, basically, don't ever say when we're being tempted, you're being tempted by God. God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. But there's a few things that he cannot do. Yes, he can create, he can create any, he created everything, and that he moves mountains. But there's some things he cannot do. See, God is a God that can't lie. He can only speak truth. God is a God who cannot lie. God is a God that is, gonna, is, is beginning and end. There is no end to him. He does not die. And the third thing that God is, he does not do evil. He does not do wrong. Everything about him is pure and right. That's something to rest in. Now, there's many temptations, but I'm going to go over one area of temptation that I think is most confusing to all of us. And I don't really have any children here, which is great. Good. So... Um, I'm going to go over one area of temptation, and I let the, I let the leadership know uh, our, our, um, our meeting this morning. I'm going to be as very careful as I can. So why do I get tempted? So here's the question. Why do I get tempted to do things that God says are wrong but may be natural and definitely bring pleasure? They're pleasurable. They're pleasurable sins. They're things that I do that 
that, that why do I get, why am I so tempted, right, to do those things that are natural and tempting? So James talks about this in James chapter 4. James chapter 4 talks about this. James chapter 4 verse 1 says, what causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Do they come, don't they come from your desires? So highlight that, underline that, or write that in your notes, your desires. The battle within you. So here's the, here's the issue. There's a temptation, there's a trial, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a problem that we have, we're, we're struggling here, and what's the battle? It comes from a desire that's within us. It says your desire, you desire but you do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So this desire and do not have and you kill, meaning if you have anger through it, then you've committed murder, right? I'll do whatever it takes to get what I want. You don't have because you do not ask God. In other words, God wants to give you the real desires in your heart, but you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now these pleasures that James is talking about that we're talking about comes to temptation, they're not wrong within themselves, but it's whenever it's for a selfish or a sinful motive or to do it where it becomes sinful. But the pleasure itself is not moral. Um, now verse four of chapter four in James is where I want you to focus on here. It says, you adulterous people. Okay, so how do we go from, you know, I want to do some stuff, but, but I'm not able to do that, and I'm going to get my way and try to do it, and, and, and yet, I, you know, I'm asking God to help me here, and, 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 but I ask wrongly, and how do I get from there to adultery? How we got to adulterous people is that anytime we take any desire and fulfill it in a sinful way, we're committing adultery against God because why? We are married to him. He is our lover. He is who we are faithful or supposed to be faithful to. We're taking what he meant to fulfill our hearts and our desires and we're giving that love to someone or something else. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James chapter four, verse four. Now, the desires or the pleasure or what I'm talking about has to do with arousal. To me, this is one of the most confusing ones. I have never seen someone say, oh, I want to eat this dessert because it's going to taste bad. No, as a matter of fact, it's going to set off all kinds of pleasure sensors. There's going to be some type of arousal out of it. There's going to be some type of pleasure out of it, right? Or maybe dancing. Man, I love, they're dancing but with a sad face. They're singing, right, but they're all upset. No, People usually sing, if they voluntarily sing, they're usually happy. It's hard to be sad and sing, unless it's a country song. <laughs> By the way, I found out, and I thought I would share this because I'm so serious all the time, i got to break it up a little bit, is that I realize why I'm so emotional. And I know a lot of you have seen that, right, through my preaching, just getting to know me, or just talking out in the parking lot, I just get emotional, right? The reason why I get so emotional is because my dad brought me up on so many country songs. I actually was going to play some for you to hear, and then you would understand what I'm talking about. But I figured that out. So anyways, hopefully that breaks up all the seriousness. <laughs> so now a little bit more serious. Now when it comes to our first sexual experience, check this out. Pay attention here. Here's what happens. When you are aroused by something sinful 
for the very first time. I'm not saying sexuality is sinful. I'm just saying it was sinful, right? Especially when you are young. And usually that's when it happens, when you're vulnerable. And it makes an imprint on you. At that moment, whatever that was. Now, pay attention here. The actual arousal is not moral in meaning it's not wrong. It's not sinful. The question is what caused it may be sinful or maybe not, right? Let me say that again. The arousal is not sinful, and it's if what caused it is sinful makes it sinful. That makes an imprint. It makes a path in your brain. Because guess what it affected? It affected your emotions. It affected your feelings. It affected your brain. It affected, you, you felt in your body, your body, right? It made a path, and it affected your soul. Because we're mind, body, soul. You can't get one without the other. It makes this path. And see, what's powerful about it is it's an instant path that's there, and it's, it's something that can take you down that path over and over, especially if it happened over and over again. And that's how much more powerful it gets. It's this, like, rut in the road. It's this pathway that's just lined out. We'll find this in Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. It says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. This is God. This is the wisdom of God. This is God himself saying, pay attention here. Listen closely to my insight. So here's God giving us some answers, some insight. So you may carefully practice discretion on your lips and preserve knowledge. Discretion is to know what's the difference here? What, what's right? What's wrong? How do we figure this out? What's the right path? It says here, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Now, this can be talking literally about someone that is in adultery, or this could be talking about what James is talking about in chapter 4, fulfilling our desires outside of God, which is adultery. So keep that in mind. It's very important. And her speech is smoother than oil, right? What you hear, what it looks like, what it may seem like, what you can imagine, that path that you've gone down, it's smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. At the end, it's just like James says, when it produces, right, when it, when it gives birth, it brings death. A double-edged sword means there's no way you can get a hold of it. You're going to cut yourself. It says, her feet go down to death. Her steps lead to Sheol. You aren't thinking about where her life is headed. Her steps wander, but you do not realize it. Again, steps, path, direction. There's this path that goes on in us mentally, physically, emotionally, with our soul. It's a path we can quickly go down, and it's a trench. Verse 15 says, drink water from your own cistern. Now, this is actually erotic. This is actually talking about, if you just think about it, I'm not going to spell it out. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs flow outside or streams of water in the street? In other words, that's not good. They should be for you and you alone and not for strangers who are with you. Verse 18 says, let your fountain be blessed with and enjoy the wife of your youth like a loving deer, a beautiful doe. Let her breast satisfy you all the time. Be constantly intoxicated by her love. This is God's plan for sexuality in a healthy way. 
Why should you be intoxicated, verse 20, by an adulteress, my son, embrace the bosom and embrace the bosom of a foreign woman? Now, keeping in mind, this could be literal or this could also be figurative, but, or it could be exactly what we're talking about when it comes to this experience. This is what's so confusing, the word intoxication. I know we're talking about sexual sin, but this relates to any pleasure that, me, that is met outside of God. Any pleasure, any pleasure, any pleasure at all. If we look back at James chapter four, the temptation, the trial is coming from desires and desires to have met outside the love of God makes us unfaithful and adulterous to God. It's dangerous, it's a slippery slope, it's a quick way, it's a, it's a trench, it's not easy to get out of, it's a trap. Now how do we get out of this trap? We get out of this trap, verse seven and eight, that we skipped. It says, now children, listen to me. Don't turn your way, don't turn away from what I'm saying. So hear this, hold on to this. Keep far away from her and don't get near the entrance to her house. The only way to be able to get out of this path, this trap, this way of fulfilling our desires away from God is to move away from it. There's no other way. Jesus says if your right hand causes you to sin or your eye, pluck it out, cut your hand off. There is no way to manage this. There's no way to uh, somehow handle this within our own strength. So here's the thing. So once you've been aroused outside of God's plan, especially if it's something you have continued over and over, whether it happened to you by choice or not choice, or you choose to do it, it created a path in your brain, in your body, in your soul, in your emotions that will need to be rewired once you've realized it. It's not that quick, not that easy. Yes, can God do miracles? Yes. He can instantly heal that. But for most of us, it's not that way. You will not be able to go by that door. You'll need to move far away from that door of whatever that is. Now, to illustrate this, I have a story about a real person. This is someone that uh, I talked to, because I'm trying to keep the person's uh, identity, um, you know, it's no one here or anything like that. But anyways, um, eight years of marriage, maybe, maybe 10. He let me know that his, uh, his wife had caught him looking at things he shouldn't be looking at. And um, we just started to, you know, dive a little deeper. Um, he was actually um, practicing some of the things that, that he was looking at as well. Um, and the thing was is that he was actually looking at stuff from the same sex. So other male. And, um, and so as we began to talk, he said one of the things that he experienced is that he really doesn't have any um, intimacy with his wife. It's lacking. There's not real any, like, anything there uh, when it comes to physical intimacy. And so, um, and it, it was just, you know, confusing, you know, this whole uh, situation that he's in, and he's been in for a long time. So I asked him, I said, what was your first experience when it comes to that? And his first experience, unfortunately, being brought up in the church and, all that, it was one of his dad's friends, a male, that abused him. Okay, so what was your, and, 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 and so more specifically, when were you first aroused? And that's just a crazy question, right? But God is a God that can just say anything. 
And, he, and it's important that we're truthful. So I asked that question. And he said, that time and then another time, there was um, some uh, boys uh, that would go behind the bleachers at school and they would do things together. And uh, I said, okay. Because, see, this person never really pursued a relationship with the same sex ever. Never saw himself doing it, never wanted that. But he was struggling in that area. Um, so then went on to ask, you know, the rest, and we talked through it. See, his first experience made a path. It wasn't, he didn't sin in it, but it made this understanding in his mind that, hey, this is what arouses me. That's natural, right? That, that's not moral. What was happening to him was sinful. And, of course, it creates this path where you continue to, you know, become aroused or get this pleasure the same way over and over again. And it's the same when it comes to opposite sex, right? If it's the opposite sex, if you were maybe abused or, 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 or someone opened your mind to something or you experienced something that, that you shouldn't have experienced until you were in a relationship and married to someone, and that door is open and it makes that path, it's the same thing. As a matter of fact, you'll struggle with very, very strong, powerful thoughts most of your life until you start working through this and learning how to know what is, what is natural and what is normal and what is sinful and ask God to help you to maybe mourn some of that and realize that's where you're at. See, when it comes to touch, it brings pleasure and arousal, and it's normal, and it's natural. What makes it moral, good or bad, is if it's within marriage. So this is where most people stop and get stuck, okay? We all get stuck with this for some reason. Um, they've had this experience. It wasn't healthy. It was with the opposite sex or the same sex. It doesn't matter. They were wondering, why do I struggle with that? Why do I struggle with that? When it comes to the opposite sex experience, it's detrimental and it's not healthy. And when it comes to the same sex, it's just as detrimental. And then we have these desires that say, well, God doesn't allow that, right? He doesn't allow same sex. Let me share something with you. If someone came over to you and started to give you a massage on your back, and you were not allowed to look behind you and who it was, you would feel pleasure, especially if they're good masseuse, right? You know, little deep tissue, you know, little hot stones, you know, you'd be like, oh, man, it feels good. It has nothing to do with male or female. I hope that makes sense. I hope I'm not crazy up here. Um, and that's because the way the body was designed. What happens is remember, we remember the experience, whether it's male or female, and it creates a path in our mind, in our body. I know I've said that over and over, but it's important you get this. And you liking the pleasure is how your body is designed. So when you are to have, when you have it to happen, I'm sorry. So when you are to have it, it's supposed to be through a loving relationship in marriage. And that's what Proverbs is talking about. Hey, let that wow be where you get, you know, satisfied or whether you're encouraged. And it's something that God has designed to help a marriage continue to stay together. Now, this man had been in bondage for about 15 years He's now free, fully restored, and his marriage 
is awesome and they have a healthy physical intimacy. This is like years of this. Now I talked to you about pleasure when it comes to sex, but it's the same thing when it comes to all pleasure. All pleasure, like alcohol. I remember when I was probably about the age of eight and I was the first time I drank hard liquor. I think it was Jim Beam or Jack Daniels, it was one of those because it was dark. And I remember that it burnt like crazy. But like within just, I don't know, maybe minutes, I don't even know, seconds, I felt different. I felt like, wow, this is cool. And we just started laughing and having fun and it was like the greatest feeling in the world, right? I don't mean to, to say that flippantly. It's, it's serious, I know. But I felt that way. And I just thought to myself, man, the more I could drink that, the more I could have fun like that, the more I'm going to do it. This is like the greatest thing in the world. So what did I start doing? Going to different people's houses, friends, family. We would pour out, put some water in so that we'd be at the same level. We wouldn't get busted. And bringing jars to the school, you know, at eight, eight, you know, eight years old, all the way to God knows when. That was pleasurable, right? There's nothing wrong with the pleasure. There's something wrong with getting drunk. Yes, I understand that. But that pleasure starts to get out of control. I can fast forward. I'm 16 years old, and I'm driving down, and I'm going to the fiestas in Santa Fe. Uh, it's a week-long uh, party of the city, and it's a celebration, whatever. Anyways, driving down, and, 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 I, and I'm, I'm buzzed, and I'm driving, and I reach down for my, my cigarette, and I go along the side of the road, and I was about to hit somebody, right? That's just one of the crazy things that I've done while being intoxicated. That's not healthy. That's not good. So again, this could be for anything. And I'm just talking, you know, those ones. But this could be any kind of pleasure. Like alcohol. Like whatever. Now, verse 16. Uh, we're going to go through verse 16. It says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now, before I go there, I just want to land the plane a little bit on this. Because James is saying here, look, I know you're going to be tempted. I know you're going to have temptations. And this is what's hard about it, right, is when it makes us feel good. We have a hard time with that. Like, this makes me feel so good, so why would God not want me to have this, right? Why, why am I doing this? Why, why is this happening in my life? And James is saying, I want to make it very clear that temptation is not coming from God. Whatever pleasure it brings you, if it's outside the will of God, that's not from God. He doesn't want that for you. He has a better plan and a better way. And as a matter of fact, he's the one that can bring you more pleasure than what you get from that. That's what we call a bondage, right, when we're stuck to doing that over and over again. Now he goes on to say, in sort of reiterating that God is good, right? Don't believe, be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change, of his own will brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It was far most, by far most, the biggest question that was ever asked. We gave a survey out from the leadership. And the, biggest question, uh, the biggest question someone would want to ask God is why does God allow suffering? Why do bad things happen to people, right? If God's so good. And also, hey, if I'm tempted, why am I tempted to do things that I want to do? And why do I do them, right? So those are the two things. And James is actually in this scripture dealing with both of those. And he basically says right away, I want you to know, don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift 
and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God only does what's good and what's perfect. But it's hard because we feel suffering and we go through it. So why does God allow me to go through trials and temptations and trials of suffering, right? How can God be a good God if he allows bad things to happen to me? If everything is going good, here's the problem. And I'm having a great week. We think it's us. But if something starts to go wrong, that's God if we get to a storm. First thing is, when and where does suffering come from? When and where does suffering come from? How did it become part of this world, this, this life on this earth? It came through the fall. God had told Adam and Eve, look, if you eat of the tree, you will die. And when they died spiritually, they start to feel suffering. They suffered from what? Insecurity, fear, jealousy, anger, rage. From that point on, the storms could last a lot longer and there could be floods as we saw in Noah's time. From that time on, there could be earthquakes. From that time on, there could be disease and pestilence. There was now thorns and thistle. Something changed. Did God do that? No. God didn't do that. Because see, every good gift comes from God. So it comes from the fallen state, this fallen world. But the question is, why does God not just stop it all? Why doesn't just God stop it all? Well, that's a hard question to answer. And if there's anyone here that can answer it, let me know because I need to know. But I'll attempt to just talk about it a little bit and see if we can close somewhere here. Now, when it comes to why doesn't God stop it all, it's sort of like a parent that has their children and maybe they live in a certain city, certain school, certain situation, and they got to move. And they're maybe 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old. They already have friends, they have family, they have everything there, and they move that child. And that child now begins to suffer because they lost friendships, they have to make new friendships, they're alone, right? Different school, different situation. Is the parent bad even though that maybe they even moved because of the place they were in that was hurting the child? Do they need to understand why the parents moved them in order for it to be okay? No. As a matter of fact, that may have been what actually helped the child and what was healthy for the child, even though they did not understand why they had to suffer. That's sort of like God. God may make changes. You, may, you will have suffering. You may not understand why it's happening. But ultimately, that doesn't mean it's not for your good. And did you know that no matter what suffering comes your way, it's always ultimately for your good? Because God says he works out all things for the good for those that love him. There's not one wasted tear, not one wasted trial, not one wasted stress. Not one. For the Bible says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What about another world without suffering? What about just a whole other world without suffering? And to illustrate this, it's pretty cool. Me and my wife were talking the other day, and um, I was saying, man, if my dad would have lived closer to his work. So my dad lives probably about 50 miles from his work. It's about maybe, maybe 45 miles, but it's up this real long hill, and you can only go so fast, it takes about an hour. 
And he's been there 35 years, ever since I was a kid. Now, where he works, it's at the Los Alamos National Lab. Look it up. They made the atomic bomb. It probably is the most richest county in all of the U.S., has the most scientists, lots of money, the very best schools. It's a town that shuts down probably by 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock. You have the police that police it, and then you also have the security that police the government buildings there. So basically, if my dad wanted to run down the road at 100 miles an hour with me and my sister in it, because he was intoxicated, it ain't going to happen. So overall, I would have went to the best school. My dad probably wouldn't have gotten in as much trouble as he did. He probably would have got help a lot sooner. But then I would have missed Veronica. And I said, no way. I wouldn't want it. It took me two seconds. Nope. If I couldn't get Veronica, I don't want it. I don't care what would have happened. So what about another world without suffering? If that world meant that we would not know Christ, which is a fictitious thing, right? It's an imagination. Would it be worth it? Even though we would think some things would be better for us if it was a certain way and if we didn't go through that suffering. But each and every one of us have stories of suffering that we do see some stories, some, some things that we could see the other side of them, right? We could see the other side of this suffering and where it's led us to. We can see God's hands in it. And yes, there are those sufferings that we won't get answered until the day that we're with the Father, right? At the end of James, he is making it clear that there is no shadow when it comes to God. The most important temptation that we will face is what God says is true, this is the temptation, is, is what God says is true. Is God good? Is he trustworthy? Or is there some bad or dark side to God? Does God have a shadow? And that's the title of the message, Does God Have a Shadow? Does God have a shadow? See, if I was God and you were God, I would think you would agree with me. I would not create a belief system, and a world that would have to believe that you're going to suffer in order for you to be his follower, right? Jesus makes his recruits by saying, guess what? If you come and you follow me over here, you're going to suffer, you're going to get beat, and you're going to die just like me. And he volunteers. As a matter of fact, one of his sayings is, pick up your cross and deny yourself daily. Would you create a belief system like that? No, you wouldn't. There's no way I would do that, right? If I was trying to get every person to follow and believe, I would not start off by saying, hey, you're going the wrong way. You're going to have to suffer, right? What I would say is that guess what? You became a Christian. You get a 30-day subscription free to a day spa, movies free for the next year, and everything that you ask God, he's going to do. That's how I'd get people to join, right? That's how you get people to join. What benefit does it happen? Is it for me? See, I just feel like we're in constant battle of God being on trial. 
having to defend him like we're constantly looking for his shadow. See, God has the, is the only one that has ever been perfect, the only one that has ever been good, the only one that has ever been right of all time. And from God's perspective, what would you feel? That what you created chose to disobey, brings destruction, continues in it, can't get themselves out of it. You've got to rescue them, and now you've got to answer to them on why this is happening. See, the only shadow and dark day that was experienced truly in full effect was the day that Jesus was nailed to the cross. It was my sin and your sin that became a shadow, and he felt the full wrath of God. You know why he did that? You know what gave him the motivation? James is talking about count it all joy. That word joy is important. The reason why that word joy is important is because he's letting us know there's got to be something that's bigger and better than ourselves. There's got to be a joy in order for us to get through our trial and our suffering, whatever it is, fill in the blank. And how do we know that is true? Is because it says that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Do you know what this joy is? Never heard this before. Tim Keller said, you know what the joy is? You. God had everything. He has everything. But he didn't have you. Before the cross, he did not have you. And because there was pure joy in loving you unconditionally, he says, I will experience the shadow so you will not experience it. As we come to a close and as we sing a couple songs, I want to invite you, I want to ask you, have you been putting God on trial? I want you to know that God can handle that you're putting him on trial. That's how big and amazing God is. He can handle anything, right? So it's okay if you are. I don't want you to feel condemned in that. But have you? Have you been putting the temptations of this pleasure that you feel and you experience on him? Have you maybe fallen to the deception that this is the way you're going to be and you're never going to change and you're all messed up? That's what I feel. That's what I think whenever I go through those temptations. It's like, man, why did you make me this way? Why am I like this? Why did I do it again? Right? When am I ever going to learn? Why am I suffering? Why is this happening to my family? Why am I going through this? God, why are you doing this? Is God on trial? Are you looking for his shadow? If that's you, because I know it's me at times, I'm looking for God's shadow instead of looking for his face. His face, right? The one that went through the shadow, the one that suffered on our behalf, the one that took the pain and the sorrow. See, the worst suffering would be that if God were to make this world without suffering, but yet you would never get him. You would never get who he really is. The major suffering that we're going through is not that we can't fulfill this desire and we have this temptation and the pain of the suffering. Because you know why? There's people in countries that are poorer than poor and tragedy after tragedy, and they're not asking for those to be removed. 
You know what they're asking for? is something to believe in. Someone to believe in. Someone to love them. And for them to love someone because they're made in the very image of God. And there's no difference with us that may have food and shelter and maybe not so much tragedy in the bigger sense as some places in the world. We are just as poor as they are. We're just in need as they are. And the greatest suffering is to go along your whole life, my whole life, never experiencing a fulfilled relationship with Christ. It's something that you can't just taste once. It's something that's, been, that's meant to fill you over and over again because as soon as you get filled and as soon as you experience Jesus, our hearts, right, and our lives are designed to be filled again and again and again. And all of a sudden you start making a new path that's different than that other path that's really thick and seems like we're never gonna get out of. First by removing ourselves and creating this new path. And neurologically and scientifically it's true. It takes a long time for these wires to be fixed. So it's not just a moral thing like, man, I'm just so messed up, I'm just gonna do this, you know, I'm tempted, this is what I do, this is what makes me pleasure. It's also physiologically. There are many times I've done things not because I truly want to, I hate what I do. Even that Paul says that I hate what I do is because there's these paths, there's these habits, there's this bondage. It'll take community, it'll take confessing, it'll take walking in the light and sharing, it'll take, you know, removing things from your life, literally, so they won't have that hold on you because you have this pattern and path that one thought and one action and one visual leads to this and to that, and before you know it, you're there again. Everybody knows that I'm speaking the truth because it's true. But ultimately, if God doesn't fulfill that desire, if he's not the one that we get and stop committing our spiritual adultery and have the true lover that our heart truly wants, the craziest thing is that we could have the greatest sinful experience, the greatest ever thought to man, and be as empty as ever can be. Because there and I don't know who said this, but I heard this from someone. There's a song that we want to hear, right? There's a movie we want to see. There's a smell we want to have. It's of a beautiful place, but we never get it because it's only in Jesus. Jesus wants to meet that need today. He only was missing one thing, and that was you. As we stand... So awkward. <laughs> I want you to know that if you've been suffering through whatever it is, whatever kind of you know, sinful uh, temptation or desires or pleasures and they're out of control and all that, I, I just want to tell you that I'm sorry. That's, that's the first thing and that I'm right there with you. If we could share stories, you probably won't like me after that because you be like, oh my God, I didn't know you ever went through that or did that or do that. Um, so I'm right there with you. I want you to know that. And it's not a shameful thing. It's a, our shame has already been uh, paid for and nailed to the cross. That's why we can publicly talk about it. That's why I'm able to say it across the podium. That's why God doesn't even hold back when it comes to his word on any topic, topic or subject. But I want you to know you're not alone and I want 
you to reach out to somebody. Uh, if you can come up and pray. And, and even if, if that's not it, even if, if it's not that part, maybe it's the trial. Maybe you're in a trial. Maybe you're in suffering right now. You've been suffering for a long time. And, and yeah, you're, you're starting to look for the shadow of God. And, and it's, just, it's just weighing on you. You know, come up and pray. And if it has nothing to do with that. And you just want to pray for healing. Maybe, maybe you're sick. Maybe you want to pray for, you know, a job advancement. I, it doesn't matter. Just because you come up here doesn't mean it has to do with what I'm talking about. But don't leave here if God is asking you to come up. And I'm just asking you, would you stop looking for his shadow? Would you give God a break? Would you allow your heart to be fully fulfilled in him? Not in what you have not in your family, not in things going well, not in anything else but Christ. You've been carrying this too long. It's been too hard for you. It's been too heavy. Would you take God off a trial? And would you know, as James says, he doesn't have a shadow, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Receive your gift. The gift is Jesus.